Welcome back, everyone, to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I hope you're enjoying the story as much as I am. It's time for Chapter 21. It was after sunup now, but we went right on and didn't tie up. The king and the duke turned out by and by looking pretty rusty, but after they jumped overboard and took a swim, it chippered them up a good deal. After breakfast, the king, he took a seat on the corner of the raft and pulled off his boots and rolled up his breeches and let his legs dangle in the water so as to be comfortable and lit his pipe and went to get in his Romeo and Juliet down by heart. When he'd got it pretty good, him and the duke began to practice it together. The duke had to learn him over and over again how to say every speech and he made him sigh and put his hand on his heart and after a while he said he'd done it pretty well. Only, he says, you mustn't bellow out Romeo that way like a bull. You must say it soft and sick and languishy so Romeo. That is the idea. For Juliet's a dear, sweet, mere child of a girl, you know, and she doesn't bray like a jackass. Well, next they got out a couple of long swords that the Duke made out of oak laths and begun to practice the sword fight. The Duke called himself Richard III, and the way they laid on and pranced around the raft was grand to see. But by and by the king tripped and fell overboard, and after that they took a rest and had to talk about all kinds of adventures they'd had in other times along the river. After dinner, the duke says, Well, Capet, we'll want to make this a first-class show, you know, so I guess we'll add a little more to it. We want a little something to answer encores with anyway. What's encores, Bilgewater? The duke told him and then says, I'll answer by doing the Highland Fling or the Sailor's Hornpipe, and you, well... Let me see. Oh, I've got it. You can do Hamlet's soliloquy. Hamlet's what? Hamlet's soliloquy, you know, the most celebrated thing in Shakespeare. Ah, it's sublime. Always fetches the house. I haven't got it in the book. I've only got one volume. But I reckon I can piece it out from memory. I'll just walk up and down a minute and see if I can call it back from Recollections Vaults. So he went to marching up and down, thinking and frowning horrible every now and then. Then he would hoist up his eyebrows. Next he would squeeze his hand on his forehead and stagger back and kind of moan. Next he would sigh, and next he'd let on to drop a tear. It was beautiful to see him. By and by he got it. He told us to give attention. Then he strikes a most noble attitude with one leg shoved forwards and his arms stretched away up and his head tilted back, looking up at the sky. And then he begins to rip and rave and grit his teeth. And after that, all through his speech, he howled, he spread around, and he swelled up his chest, and just knocked the spots out of any acting I ever seen before. This is the speech. I learned it easy enough, while he was learning it to the king. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would fardels bear till Burnham Wood do come to Dussanane? But that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep, great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others that we know not of. There's the respect must give us pause. 
Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking. I would thou couldst, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the law's delay, and the quietest which his pangs might take. In the dead waste and middle of the night, when churchyards yawn in customary suits of solemn black, but that the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, breathes forth contagion on the world, and thus the native hue of resolution, like the poor cat, I, the adage, is sicklied o'er with care, and all the clouds that lowered are our housetops. With this regard their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. But soft, you, the fair Ophelia, ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery. Go! Well, the old man, he liked that speech, and he mighty soon got it so he could do it first rate. It seemed like he was just born for it, and when he had his hand in and was excited, it was perfectly lovely the way he would rip and tear and rear up behind when he was getting it off. The first chance we got, the Duke, he had some show bills printed, and after that, for two or three days as we floated along, the raft was a most uncommon lively place, so for there weren't nothing but sword fighting and rehearsing, as the Duke called it, going on all the time. One morning, when we was pretty well down the state of Arkansas, we come in sight of a little one-horse town in a big bend, so we tied up about three-quarters of a mile above it, in the mouth of a creek which was shut in like a tunnel by the cypress trees, and all of us but Jim took the canoe and went down there to see if there was any chance in that place for our show. We struck it mighty lucky. There was going to be a circus there that afternoon, and the country people was already beginning to come in in all kinds of old shackly wagons, and on horses. The circus would leave before night, so our show would have a pretty good chance. The Duke, he hired the courthouse, and we went around and stuck up our bills, and they read like this. Shakespearean revival, wonderful attraction, for one night only. The world-renowned tragedians, David Garrick the Younger, of Drury Lane Theatre, London, and Edmund Keane the Elder, of the Royal Haymarket Theatre, Whitechapel, Pudding Lane, Piccadilly, London, and the Royal Continental Theatres in their sublime Shakespearean spectacle entitled The Balcony Scene in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo played by Mr. Garrick, Juliet played by Mr. Keene, assisted by the whole strength of the company. New costumes, new scenery, new appointments. Also, the thrilling, masterling, blood-curdling, broadsword conflict in Richard III, and by special request, Hamlet's immortal soliloquy by the illustrious Keene, done by him three hundred consecutive nights in Paris, for one night only, on account of imperative European engagements. Admission, twenty-five cents. Children and servants, ten cents. Then we went loafing around the town, the stores and houses was most all shackly dried up frame concerns that hadn't ever been painted. They was set up three or four foot above ground on stilts, so as to be out of reach of the water when the river was overflowed. The houses had little gardens around them, but they didn't seem to raise hardly anything in them but jimson weeds, and sunflowers, and ash piles, and old curled up boots and shoes, and pieces of bottles and rags 
and played out tinware. The fences was made of different kinds of boards, nailed on at different times, and they leaned every which way, and had gates that didn't generally have but one hinge, a leather one. Some of the fences had been whitewashed, some time or other, but the Duke said it was in Columbus's time. There were generally hogs in the garden, and generally people driving them out. All the stores was along one street. They had white domestic awnings in front, and the country people hitched their horses to the awning post. There was empty dry goods boxes under the awnings, and loafers roosting on them all day long, whittling them with their barlow knives, and chawing tobacco, and gaping and yawning and stretching. A mighty ornery lot. They generally had on yellow straw hats most as wide as an umbrella, but didn't wear no coats nor waistcoats. They called one another Bill, and Buck, and Hank, and Joe, and Andy, and talked lazy and drawly, and used considerable many cuss words. There was as many as one loafer leaning up against every awning post, and he most always had his hands in his breeches pockets, except when he fetched them out to lend a chaw of tobacco or scratch. What a body was hearing amongst them all the time was, Give me a chaw of tobacco, Hank. Can't. I ain't got but one chaw left. Ask Bill. And maybe Bill, he gives him a chaw. Maybe he lies and says he ain't got none. Some of them kinds of loafers never has a cent in the world, nor a chaw of tobacco of their own. They get all their chawing by borrowing. They say to a fellow, I wish you'd lend me a chaw, Jack. I just this minute give Ben Thompson the last chaw I had. Which is a lie pretty much every time. It don't fool nobody but a stranger. But Jack ain't no stranger, so he says, You give him a chaw, did you? So did your sister's cat's grandmother. You pay me back the chaws you already borrowed off me, Leif Buckner. Then I'll loan you one or two ton of it, and won't charge you no back interest, nother. Well, I did pay you back some of it, once. Yes, you did, about six chaws. You borrowed store tobacco and paid back nothing. Store tobacco is a fat black plug, but these fellows mostly chaws the natural leaf twisted. When they borrow a chaw, they don't generally cut it off with a knife, but set the plug in between their teeth and gnaw with their teeth and tug at the plug with their hands till they get it in two. Then sometimes the one that owns the tobacco looks mournful at it when it's handed back and says sarcastic, Hey, here, give me the chaw. You take the plug. All the streets and lanes was just mud. They weren't nothing else but mud. Mud as black as tar and nigh about a foot deep in some places and two or three inches deep in all the places. The hogs loafed and grunted around everywheres. You'd see a muddy sow and a litter of pigs come lazing along the street and wallop herself right down in the way where folks had to walk around her. And she'd stretch out and shut her eyes and wave her ears whilst the pigs was milking her and look as happy as if she was on a salary. And pretty soon you'd hear a loafer sing out, Hey, so boy, sick him, Tig. And away the sow would go, squealing most horrible, with a dog or two swinging to each ear, and three or four dozen more coming. And then you would see all the loafers get up and watch the thing out of sight, and laugh at the fun and look grateful for the noise. Then they'd settle back again, till there was a dog fight. There couldn't anything wake them up all over and make them happy all over like a dog fight. 
unless it might be putting turpentine on a stray dog and setting fire to him, or tying a tin pan to his tail and see him run himself to death. On the riverfront, some of the houses was sticking out over the bank, and they was bowed and bent, and about ready to tumble in. The people had moved out of them. The bank was caved away under one corner of some others, and that corner was hanging over. People lived in them yet, but it was dangersome, because sometimes a strip of land as wide as a house caves in at a time. Sometimes a belt of land a quarter of a mile deep will start in and cave along and cave along till it all caves into the river in one summer. Such a town as that has always to be moving back and back because the river's always gnawing at it. The nearer we got to noon that day, the thicker and thicker was the wagons and horses in the streets, and more coming all the time. Families fetched their dinners with them from the country and ate them in the wagons. There was considerable whiskey drinking going on, and I seen three fights. By and by, somebody sings out, Here comes old Boggs, in from the country for his little old monthly drunk. Here he comes, boys. All the loafers looked glad. I reckon they was used to having fun out of Boggs. One of them says, Wonder who he's going to char up this time. If he'd have chawed up all the men he's been a gwine to char up in the last twenty year, he'd have a considerable reputation now. Another one says, I wished old Bugs to threaten me, cause then I'd know I weren't gwine to die for a thousand years. Bugs comes a tearing along on his horse, whooping and yelling like an engine, and singing out, Clear the track there, I'm on the wall path, and price of coffins is a gwine to raise. He was drunk and weaving about in his saddle, and he was over fifty year old, and had a very red face. Everybody yelled at him and laughed at him and sassed him, and he sassed them back, and he said he'd attend to them and lay them out in the regular turns, but he couldn't wait now because he'd come to town to kill old Colonel Sherburne, and his motto was, meat first and spoon vittles to top off on. He seen me and rode up and says, where'd you come from, boy? You prepared to die? Then he rode on. I was scared, but a man says, He don't mean nothing. He's always carrying on like that when he's drunk. He's the best-naturedest old fool in Arkansas. Never hurt nobody, drunk nor sober. Boggs rode up before the biggest store in town and bent his head down so he could see under the curtain of the awning and yells, Come out here, Sherburn. Come out and meet the man you've swindled. You're the hound I'm after. "'and I'm a gwine to have you, too.' "'And so he went on, "'calling Sherburne everything he could lay his tongue to, "'and the whole street packed with people "'listing and laughing and going on. "'By and by a proud-looking man about fifty-five, "'and he was a heap the best-dressed man in that town, too, "'steps out of the store, "'and the crowd drops back on each side to let him come. "'He says to Boggs, "'mighty calm and slow, he says, I'm tired of this, but I'll endure it till one o'clock. Till one o'clock, mind. No longer. If you open your mouth against me only once after that time, you can't travel so far, but I will find you. Then he turns and goes in. The crowd looked mighty sober. Nobody stirred, and there weren't no more laughing. Boggs rode off blackguarding Sherbert as loud as he could yell. "'all down the street, and pretty soon back he comes "'and stops before the store, 
still keeping it up. Some men crowded around him and tried to get him to shut up, but he wouldn't. They told him it would be one o'clock in about fifteen minutes, and so he'd better go home. Right now. But it didn't do no good. He cussed away with all his might and throwed his hat down in the mud and rode over it. And pretty soon away he went a-raging down the street again with his gray hair a-flying. Everybody that could get a chance at him tried their best to coax him off his horse so they could lock him up and get him sober. But it weren't no use. Up the street he would tear again and give Sherburne another cussing. By and by somebody says, Hey, somebody, go for his daughter. Quick, go for his daughter. Sometimes you'll listen to her. If anybody can persuade him, she can. So somebody started on a run. I walked down street a ways and stopped. In about five or ten minutes, here comes Boggs again, but not on his horse. He was a-reeling across the street towards me, bareheaded, with a friend on both sides of him a holt of his arms and hurrying him along. He was quiet and looked uneasy, and he weren't hanging back any, but was doing some of the hurrying himself. And somebody sings out, Boggs! I looked over there to see who said it, and it was that Colonel Sherburne. He was standing perfectly still in the street, and had a pistol raised in his right hand, not aiming it, but holding it out with the barrel tilted up towards the sky. The same second I seen a young girl coming on the run, and two men with her. Boggs and the men turned round to see who called him, and when they see the pistol the men jumped to one side, and the pistol barrel come down slow and steady to a level, both barrels cocked. Boggs throws up both his hands and says, Oh, Lord, don't shoot! Bang! goes the first shot, and he staggers back, clawing at the air. Bang! goes the second one, and he tumbles backwards onto the ground, heavy and solid, with his arms spread out. That young girl screamed out and comes rushing, and down she throws herself on her father, crying and saying, Oh, he's killed him! He's killed him! The crowd closed up around them and shouldered and jammed one another with their necks stretched, trying to see, and people on the inside trying to shove them back, shouting, Back! Back! Give him air! Give him air! Colonel Sherburne, he tossed his pistol onto the ground and turned around on his heels and walked off. They took Boggs to a little drug store, the crowd pressing around just the same, and the whole town following, and I rushed and got a good place at the window where I was close to him and could see in. They laid him on the floor and put one large Bible under his head and opened another one and spread it on his chest. But they tore open his shirt first, and I seen where one of the bullets went in. He made about a dozen long gasps, his breast lifting the Bible up when he drawed on his breath, and letting it down again when he breathed it out. And after that he laid still. He was dead. Then they pulled his daughter away from him, screaming and crying, and took her off. She was about sixteen, and very sweet and gentle looking, but awful pale and scared. Well, pretty soon the whole town was there, squirming and scrounging and pushing and shoving to get at the window and have a look. But people that had the place wouldn't give them up, and folks behind them was saying all the time, Say now, you've looked enough, you fellas. Tain't right. Tain't fair for you to stay there all the time 
"'and never give nobody a chance. "'Other folks has their rights as well as you.' "'There was considerable jawing back, "'so I slid out, thinking maybe there was going to be trouble. "'The streets was full, and everybody was excited. "'Everybody that seen the shooting was telling how it happened, "'and there was a big crowd packed around each one of these fellows, "'stretching their necks and listening.' One long, lanky man with long hair and a big white fur stovepipe hat on the back of his head and a crooked-handled cane marked out the places on the ground where Boggs stood and where Sherburne stood and the people following him around from one place to the other and watching everything he done and bobbing their heads to show they understood and stooping a little and resting their hands on their thighs to watch him mark the places on the ground with his cane. "'and then he stood up straight and stiff where Sherburne had stood, "'frowning and having his hat brimmed down over his eyes, "'and sung out, "'Boggs!' "'and then fetched his cane down slow to a level, "'and says, "'Bang!' "'Staggered backward, says, "'Bang again!' "'and fell down flat on his back. "'The people that had seen the thing said he'd done it perfect, "'said it was exactly the way it all happened. "'Then as much as a dozen people got out their bottles "'and treated him. Well, by and by, somebody said Sherburne ought to be lynched. In about a minute, everybody was saying it. So away they went, mad and yelling, and snatching down every clothesline they'd come to to do the hanging with. Chapter 22 They swarmed up toward Sherburne's house, a-whooping and a-raging like engines, and everything had to clear the way or get run over and tromped a mush. And it was awful to see. Children was heeling it ahead of the mob, screaming and trying to get out of the way, and every window along the road was full of women's heads, and there were little black boys in every tree, and bucks and wenches looking over every fence, and as soon as the mob would get nearly to them, they would break and skedaddle back out of reach. Lots of the women and girls was crying and taken on, scared most to death. They swarmed up in front of Sherburne's palings, "'as thick as they could jam together, "'and you couldn't hear yourself think for the noise. "'It was a little twenty-foot yard. "'Some sung out, "'Tear down the fence!' "'Then there was a racket of ripping and tearing and smashing, "'and down she goes, "'and the front wall of the crowd begins to roll in like a wave. "'And just then, "'Sherburne steps out onto the roof of his little front porch "'with a double-barrel shotgun in his hand, "'and takes his stand,' "'perfectly calm and deliberate, not saying a word. "'The racket stopped, and the wave sucked back. "'Sherbert never said a word, just stood there, looking down. "'The stillness was awful creepy and uncomfortable. "'Sherbert run his eyes slow along the crowd, "'and wherever it struck, the people tried a little to outgaze him, "'but they couldn't. "'They dropped their eyes and looked sneaky.' Then pretty soon Sherburne sort of laughed. Not the pleasant kind, but the kind that makes you feel like when you're eating bread that's got sand in it. Then he says, slow and scornful. The idea of you lynching anybody? It's amusing. The idea of you thinking you had pluck enough to lynch a man? Because you're brave enough to tar and feather poor friendless cast out women that come along here. Did that make you think you had grit enough to lay your hands on a man? 
Why, a man's safe in the hands of ten thousand of your kind, as long as it's daytime, and you're not behind him. Do I know you? I know you clear through. I was born and raised in the South, and I've lived in the North, so I know the average all around. The average man's a coward. In the North, he lets anybody walk over him that wants to, and goes home and prays for a humble spirit to bear it. In the South, one man all by himself has stopped a stage full of men in the daytime and robbed the lot. Your newspapers call you a brave people so much that you think you're braver than any other people, whereas you're just as brave and no braver. Why don't your juries hang murderers? Because they're afraid a man's friends will shoot them in the back in the dark. And it's just what they would do. So they always acquit. And then a man goes in the night with a hundred masked cowards at his back and lynches the rascal. Your mistake is that you didn't bring a man with you. That's one mistake. And the other is that you didn't come in the dark and fetch your masks. You brought part of a man. Buck Harkness there. And if you hadn't had him to start you, you'd have taken it out and blowing. You didn't want to come. The average man don't like trouble and danger. You don't like trouble and danger. But if only half a man, like Buck Harkness there, shouts, Lynch him! You're afraid to back down. Afraid you'll be found out to be what you cowards really are. And so you raise a yell and hang yourselves on to that half a man's coattail, and come raging up here, swearing what big things you're going to do. The pitfulest thing out is a mob. That's what an army is, a mob. They don't fight with courage that's born in them, but with courage that's borrowed from their mass and from their officers. But a mob without any man at the head of it is beneath pitiful. Now the thing for you to do is to droop your tails and go home and go crawl in a hole. If any real lynchings are going to be done, it'll be done in the dark, southern fashion. And when they come, they'll bring their masks and fetch a man along with them. Now get out of here and take your half a man with you. Tossing his gun up across his left arm and cocking it when he says this. The crowd washed back sudden and then broke all apart and went tearing off every which way. And Buck Harness, he healed it right after them, looking tolerable cheap. I could have stayed if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I went to the circus and loped around the backside till the watchman went by and then dived in under the tent. I had my $20 gold piece and some other money, but I reckon I'd better save it because there ain't no telling how soon you're going to need it. Away from home, and amongst strangers that way, you can't be too careful. I ain't opposed to spending money on circuses when there ain't no other way, but there ain't no use in wasting it on them. It was a real bully circus. It was the splendidest sight that ever was when they all come riding in, two and two, a gentleman and a lady, side by side, the men just in their drawers and undershirts, and no shoes nor stirrups, and resting their hands on their thighs, easy and comfortable. There must have been twenty of them. And every lady with a lovely complexion, and perfectly beautiful, 
"'and looking just like a gang of real sure-enough queens, "'and dressed in clothes that cost millions of dollars "'and just littered with diamonds. "'It was a powerful fine sight. i never seen anything so lovely. "'And then one by one they got up and stood "'and went a-weaving around the ring "'so gentle and wavy and graceful, "'the men looking ever so tall and airy and straight, "'with their heads bobbing and skimming along, "'away up there under the tent roof, "'and every lady's rose-leafy dress "'flapping soft and silky around her hips, "'and she looking like the most loveliest parasol. "'And then, faster and faster they went, "'all of them dancing, first one foot out in the air and then the other, "'the horses leaning more and more, "'and the ringmaster going round and round the center pole, "'cracking his whip and shouting, "'Hi! Hi!' "'and the clown cracking jokes behind him. "'And by and by, all hands dropped their reins, "'and every lady put her knuckles on her hips, "'and every gentleman folded his arms. "'And then how the horses did lean over and, and hump themselves. "'And so one after the other they all skipped off into the ring "'and made the sweetest bow I ever seen, "'and then scampered out, "'and everybody clapped their hands and went just about wild.' Well, all through the circus they'd done the most astonishing things. And all the time that clown carried on, so he'd most killed the people laughing. The ringmaster couldn't ever say a word to him, but he was back at him quick as a wink with the funniest things a body ever said. And how he ever could think of so many of them, and so sudden and so pat, was what I couldn't halfway understand. Why, I couldn't have thought of them in a year. And by and by, a drunk man tried to get into the ring, "'said he wanted to ride, "'and said he could ride as well as anybody that ever was. "'They argued, tried to keep him out, "'but he wouldn't listen, "'and the whole show come to a standstill. "'Then the people began to holler at him "'and make fun of him, "'and that made him mad, "'and he began to rip and tear, "'and that stirred up the people, "'and a lot of men began to pile down off the benches "'and swarm toward the ring, saying, "'Knock him down, throw him out!' "'and one or two women begun to scream. "'So then the ringmaster, he made a little speech "'and said he hoped there wouldn't be no disturbance, "'and if the man would promise he wouldn't make no more trouble, "'he would let him ride if he thought he could stay on the horse. "'So everybody laughed and said, all right, "'and the man got on. "'The minute he was on, "'the horse began to rip and tear and jump and cavort around, "'with two circus men hanging on to his bridle trying to hold him. "'and the drunk man hanging on to his neck, "'and his heels flying in the air every jump, "'and the whole crowd of people standing up "'shouting and laughing till tears rolled down. "'And at last, sure enough, "'all the circus men could do, "'the horse broke loose, "'and away he went like the very nation, "'round and round the ring, "'with that sot laying down on him "'and hanging on to his neck, "'with first one leg hanging most to the ground on one side, "'and then the other to one on the other side.' and the people going crazy. It wasn't funny to me, though. I was all of a tremble to see his danger. But pretty soon he struggled up a straddle and grabbed the bridle, a reeling this way and that. And the next minute he sprung up and dropped the bridle and stood on the horse's back. And the horse was a-going like a house afire, too. He just stood up there, a-sailing around as easy and comfortable as if he weren't ever drunk in his life. "'and then he began to pull off his clothes and sling them. "'He shed them so quick they kind of clogged up the air, "'and altogether he shed seventeen suits. 
"'And then there he was, slim and handsome, "'and dressed the gaudiest and prettiest you ever saw. "'And he lit into that horse with his whip "'and made him fairly hum, "'and finally skipped off and made his bow "'and danced off to the dressing room, "'and everybody just a-howling with pleasure and astonishment. "'Then the ringmaster, he seen how he'd been fooled, "'and he was the sickest ringmaster you ever see, I reckon. "'Why, it was one of his own men. "'He had got up that joke all out of his own head, "'and never let on to nobody. "'Well, I felt sheepish enough to be took in, so... "'But I wouldn't have been in that ringmaster's place "'not for a thousand dollars. "'I don't know. "'There may be bullier circuses than that one was, "'but I never struck them yet. "'Anyways, it was plenty good enough for me. "'And whenever I run across it, "'it can have all my custom every time. "'Well, that night we had our show, "'but there weren't only about twelve people there, "'just enough to pay expenses. "'And they laughed all the time, "'and that made the Duke mad. "'And everybody left anyway before the show was over, "'but one boy who was asleep... So the Duke said these Arkansas lunkheads couldn't come up to Shakespeare. What they wanted was low comedy, and maybe something rather worse than low comedy, he reckoned. He said he could size their style. So next morning he got some big sheets of wrapping paper on some black paint and drawed off some kind of handbills and stuck them up all over the village. And the bills said, The Thrilling Tragedy of the King's Camelopard On the Royal Nonsuch Admission Fifty cents. Then at the bottom was the biggest line of all, which said, Ladies and children, not admitted. Then, says he, if that line don't fetch them, I don't know Arkansas. Join us next week for chapters 23 and 24, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And here are a few recent reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road. Five stars, the best podcast. This is the best podcast I've listened to, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts. So well done. Thank you. That one from B. Hey Tio, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, five stars. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Awesome reader, great stories. I have nothing bad to say. That one from I Have a Fish Named Marcellus, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, amazing podcast, five stars. Wonderful stories told in a wonderful reading voice. Puts the text first and remains true to the author's intent. A great way to discover new writers that have been lost to history and to revisit old favorites. I'm loving the serialized reading of whole books. Treasure Island and Tarzan were fantastic, and I'm already hooked on Huckleberry Finn. And this one, great podcast, five stars. I stumbled upon this podcast and listened to part one of the Washington Spies episode because I love the show Turn. I've been listening to Treasure Island. Wow! So far, so good. My kids will be listening to this, too. Great job! Can't wait to hear more. That one from Jason Vanek, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, Tarzan of the Apes, five stars. Having enjoyed the black-and-white Tarzan movies of the 50s and 60s in my youth, and then witnessed my children's love of Disney's animated version, it's been delightful to listen to the rich origins of the Tarzan legend as told by your podcast. The quality of the narration is first class, and adds to this wonderfully detailed classic piece of American fictional literature. Thank you. That one from Frederick, Apple Podcast, U.S. 
"'And this one, Boot, five stars. "'Wonderful read, Mr. Hagedorn. "'Your narration is really great. "'Ramirez, I can't hardly wait for next week to hear more. "'Boot 076, Apple Podcast, U.S. "'And this one. "'Love it, but five stars. "'I can't believe how you dare to leave Jane in the jungle "'with that dangerous animal thirsting for her flesh. "'And to think we'll have to wait until next week to hear the results. "'If something was to happen to those two young ladies,' We'll never forgive you. Love this story and others that I've listened to. Thanks again. That one from Keith Mack, 59, Apple Podcast, U.S. This one, five stars. Rest assured, John is a reader. For the first time in my rapidly diffused life, I find myself enslaved to a periodical episode. I've never cared a whit about TV shows and the like, but was recently ensnared by the likes of John's reading of Treasure Island. I found myself waiting patiently. Who am I kidding? Impatiently. For the following Sunday to release the next much-anticipated installment of the great tale. Now I'm equally ensnared by a story which I've often dismissed as silly. Don't get me wrong, it is silly, but quite good. As is the storyteller's talent and expression. This Tarzan has captured my imagination. The podcast is engaging and entertaining. Thank you, John, for all your fine work. I know you have many irons in the fire. But if you consider t-shirts, I would gladly wear my 1001 around town. That one from Thaddeus Von Awesome, Apple Podcast, U.S. And the last one, this podcast is awesome. Five stars. John is such an amazing storyteller. I love listening to him. That one from Jim's HO92, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to write these reviews. It helps us. It helps people find us. And it moves us up in the Apple rankings. So it's greatly appreciated along with any new subscriptions you can find us. Please share our show, 1001 Stories for the Road, and we'd appreciate that very much. And thank you for your reviews again. We'll see you next week.